What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his descendants through Torah, but through the righteousness of faith. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. It is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is the word of the Lord. There is no indication that Paul knew he was within two years of his death when he wrote these words. Of course, he knew that he had been in the face of death a number of times, beaten and thrown into jail after jail because of the message he was declaring. But surely enough, about two years after he wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he was in Rome and was put to death under the persecutions of the Caesar Nero. Most of the work of Paul that we have was written to churches he had founded, people whom he knew very well. He was usually trying to solve some problem that had arisen in a church he had founded. Not this one. He had never been to Rome. He does not know these people personally. So he really is able to spell out his faith, what he believes to be the faith of this new movement, which he sees as an active part of Judaism. Dr. Thomas Wright is one of the great biblical scholars in England, and he has written the fourth chapter of Romans is trying to make one important case, and that is that God always intended that both Jew and Gentile would come into covenant relationship with him. Paul believed that he, described by himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, had been sent to us Gentiles and that God had this in mind from the very beginning of the founding of Judaism, that all his children would one day be brought into covenant with him. Let's look at the four things I've underlined here. The first part is that Abraham believed in God, him who justifies the ungodly. Remember who Abraham and Sarah were. They were living in a small little village called Ur, U-R, in the land of Mesopotamia that we learned about in the history of Western civilization, the land between the rivers, Mesopotamia, between the Tigris-Euphrates. Like everyone around them, they were heathen. They were pagan. They were polytheists, people of multiple gods. But one day, this old couple who were childless 
somehow heard the voice of God speaking to their deepest hearts. Do you ever have that experience that God Almighty is speaking to your deepest heart? Are you listening carefully? Tonight, the Academy Awards. I don't go to many movies anymore. They're not making my kind of movies very often. But I'm amazed at how many critics of movies see them the way I do. Most of the movies today are being made for 13-year-old boys. That's a stated fact. 13-year-old boys, if they like a movie, will go again and again and buy ticket after ticket, lots of popcorn and Coca-Cola. As a result, Terry Teachout, who reviews plays and movies for the Wall Street Journal, said, in the biggest blockbusters of 2012, he took a stopwatch and began to click every time there was a gunshot, every time there was an explosion. You know how long passed? 27 seconds. Between gunshots and explosions, 27 seconds until you were already at the next one. And so in his predictions about the Academy Awards tonight, he said, I really hope the movies where characters talk to each other will do well. They didn't make the most money at the box office, but maybe they will do well. I've almost given up on Hollywood, he said, but not quite. And then he mentioned specifically the movie about Abraham Lincoln. This movie is nominated for Picture of the Year. Its director is nominated for Director of the Year. Its lead actor, Actor of the Year. Supporting Actress, Supporting Actor, both nominated as well. Terry has written, I hope people didn't go to Lincoln hoping to see the Civil War. There are only a few scenes, he said, to show you how horrible the war was but all the rest of the movie could have been filmed on one stage. In fact, he said, it really is a play that has been made into a movie, that the person who wrote the screenplay is really a playwright. He wrote a play that Steven Spielberg made into a movie, in effect, and it's all about the words. It's about the words. And if you're going to get that movie, he said, you have to sit there patiently, patiently listening to the words. The Bible says, how can they believe if they have no preacher? And my question is, and how can they believe if they do not listen? You have to listen in your deepest heart to see if God is speaking to you. Number two, this depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Abraham and Sarah had done everything they knew how to have a baby. Nothing had worked. They were childless. The promise was you will have a son. And this son will be the beginning of a new people. And these people will propagate 
they will multiply and become more people and more people and more people. Paul is making the point that Abraham and Sarah were not set right with God because they did Torah when in fact they lived 600 years before Moses came along, 600 years before the Ten Commandments, their relationship with God was strictly based on God's promise and their belief that it could come true. And if you're counting on a promise delivered, then that means something about a gift received. People keep asking me, what are you going to do when you retire? And Gail listens very carefully for the answer. She is so afraid, I'm going to sit there and say, where are you going now? When are you going to be back? But I have a much longer list of things I'm not going to do after June the 2nd. Gail and I have not waited for retirement to see places we've always wanted to see. We've had wonderful vacations. Two days after I say goodbye to you, we're flying away to London and be gone three weeks. Our vacations have meant a lot to us. One of our trips we loved was to the Netherlands. We planned to spend three weeks doing trains in the Netherlands. You all know how prominent the Dutch were in the early 1600s. The Dutch East Indies Company, the Dutch West Indies Company, their ships were going all over the world and bringing back the riches of the world to Amsterdam and the surrounding communities. And when there's money and when there are sponsors, then the arts tend to thrive as well. And thrive they did. We were in Amsterdam. We went to the wonderful galleries there. You can see so many works of Van Gogh. You can see the works of Rembrandt. We went to Delft, stayed three nights there where they made for decades and decades the beautiful pottery. We went to Harlem. Uh, we went to The Hague. When Gail and I walked into one room to see an artist from that same period, Vermeer, there was a little painting. It's about 17 and a half inches by 11 and a half. Not very big. Girl with the pearl earring. We were the only two people in the room. We could get almost nose to nose. It's very popular now because a movie was made about the painting. Screenwriter dreamed up a lot of dialogue, wrote a movie. But the painting's been terrific for 400 years. Right now it's in San Francisco and it's drawing the biggest crowds. They had to put this tiny little painting in a room all by itself because so many people wanted to see it. But if you go to San Francisco to have a look, I'd recommend you go into another room where there's a beautiful big painting by Rembrandt. It's called Simeon in the Temple. And it comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke says when Jesus was taken to the temple as an infant to be blessed, there was an old man who had been going to the temple every day for decades. 
And when he saw this child, he took him into his arms, lifted his voice to God and said, Now let thy servant depart in peace. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And then Luke says, This baby will be a light to the Gentiles. Look at Rembrandt's painting. He has the high priest. You don't see his face. You see his back. He's not the principal character here. Rembrandt had no idea what a high priest looked like, so he looks more like the Pope in Rome. From the back, but he isn't the focal point of the painting. The focal point of the painting is the baby, of course, and this old man holding this child in his arms, Mary and Joseph close by, and light is emanating from the baby. The light to the Gentiles. It's magnificent. What Paul is saying, you see, is that God's love had been known by Jews for 1,800 years and finally the Gentiles have a wonderful new opportunity to move into the covenant as well. Can you too come to believe in the God of Abraham and Sarah and know that if you believe the promises of God, it will be counted to you as right standing with God? Number three. We have these wonderful words, hoping against hope. Abraham and Sarah are too old. Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I was visiting with one of our older men just a few days ago. He lives in assisted living now. He lost his wife a couple of years ago to death, a wife of almost 60 years. And as we talked, he said, I know you've tried to reassure me, but I just, I wake up wondering, will I really see her again? Will I really know her Again, I just miss her every day, every moment of the day. I miss her. And I said, and what did I tell you when you asked me that question shortly after the funeral? And he said, you said it's in the book and so you believe it. And I said, that's right. It's in the book. And so I believe it. This book says that we should hope against hope. That in fact, God has dealt and will deal with the greatest enemies humans have ever known. And Paul, in one of his letters, says, and that last great enemy is death. Lent is about how we move from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. How do we move from a truth from dust you came, to dust you shall return. But when the trumpet shall sound, we shall be raised and given a body incorruptible. 
That's what Paul wrote. One of our great hymn writers is Dr. Brian Wren. You've heard of him before. Dr. Pensera has told you about him, has had us sing some of his hymns. We Methodists now have some of Dr. Wren's hymns in three of our hymn books, 19 of them in fact. He's an Englishman, born in England, educated there, ordained in the Reformed Church of England, but became better known as a hymn writer than a preacher and eventually was invited to come to the United States to become a part of the faculty of Columbia Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. You know anybody else who taught there? How about Dr. Walter Brueggemann? The two of them were on faculty there together. Dr. Brueggemann is 80 now. Dr. Wren 77. They're both retired. But one of Dr. Wren's hymns picks up on this theme of Ash Wednesday and leads you, if you continue to sing, to Easter Sunday. Let me just remind you of his words. Dust and ashes touch our face. Mark our failure and our failing. Holy Spirit, come. Walk with us tomorrow. Take us as disciples, washed and wakened by your calling. Dust and ashes soil our hands. Greed of market, pride of nation. Holy Spirit, come. Walk with us tomorrow as we pray and struggle. Walk with us tomorrow through all gloom and grieving to the paths of resurrection. Number four. Paul then says sort of an unusual thing that we trust in this one who brings something out of nothing. And that's immediately reminiscent, of course, of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. You remember that Genesis 1 was written a long time after Genesis 2. But Genesis 2 is the more primitive creation story, the one told around campfires for hundreds of years, and finally written down, we believe, during the reign of King David, after 1000 before the Common Era. So somewhere up to 800 years, this story had been told around campfires. But Genesis 1 was not written until after 587, 586, when the dreaded Babylonians came, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, when the people were running out of food and water, they breached the walls. They stripped the temple of everything of value, stripped the palace of everything of value, marched the king's children, all of them, in front of him, and put them to death so that he could see there will be no heirs to the throne of David. And then they took out his eyes so that he could see nothing else forever and force marched him and the other best and brightest away to Babylon. The belief in that day was that the biggest, most powerful nation must have the right God because the weaker nation has been defeated and it's God, in a sense, defeated. That was the assumption. 
the priests who no longer had their beautiful temple in Jerusalem but were living along the muddy little banks of the Kabar Canal in ancient Babylon said, Our people must not believe in the gods of Babylon. That even though this terrible thing has happened to us, they must not believe in these false pagan gods. And so they wrote Genesis 1. 400 years after Genesis 2. And so many people believe Genesis 1 is about how God created. It is not about how. It is about who. Not Marduk and the other gods of Babylon, but Israel's God. In the beginning, Israel's God. Who creatio ex nihilo, the Catholics would later say, he created something out of nothing. Out of nothing, God brought light and order and being and everything we know, the great oceans and the dry land, every green plant, every living being, everything that swims in the ocean, everything that flies in the air, everything that walks, God created them all. Not Babylon's gods, Israel's God created the heaven and the earth. So now Paul uses that same idea that Abraham believed in this one who could bring something out of nothing. Creatio ex nihilo. Because Paul knew that this road of Jesus did in fact lead to death, a tomb, a stone rolled over the face of the tomb. All seemed to be lost. Hoping against hope, the women went to the tomb on Sunday morning. Stone rolled away. Someone in brilliant white asking, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has been raised. So Paul is saying we know what we need to know. To live this day trusting the grace of God. He has a gift for you. Right standing with him. He has a gift for you. Meaning. Purpose. He has a gift for you. When you bury those whom you love best of all. God creates an incorruptible body that is raised to everlasting life with him. The Bible is clear that God is like a father. God is also like a mother. A super, extra, wonderful father and mother, our God. Aaron McPherson lives in Austin, Texas, with her husband, a kindergartner, and a toddler. She wrote that last August was tough. They were sending their older one to kindergarten for the first time. She said we received a letter from the school, and this letter said, the first day of school is very important. We do not want 
all you parents in the school. We want you to bring your child to the front door and let him or her walk in. The cafeteria is straight ahead, and your child's teacher will be there to greet him or her in the cafeteria and take them to their room. Now, this is very important. Please do what we're asking. So Aaron said, I drove our little Joey to the school a week before. The teachers were already there getting ready for classes to begin the next week. So I walked him through the front door right into the cafeteria. I said, you see, you come through these doors, and there's the cafeteria, and your teacher will be there waiting for you. Okay, let's try it again. And she said, we walked back out to the sidewalk, and we walked back to the cafeteria, and we got in the car, and we went home. First day of school, I've got him all gussied up. We get to the front sidewalk. I open the door, and he gets out. But now there are fifth graders standing there near the door, and he's only five. When we were there last week, there were no fifth graders. And I see his eyes. He looks terrified. And then I see them start to well up as he blinks. And I said, Joey, you've got this. You've got this. You can do this. And I drove away. 